0: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers.
1: This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support
0: and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues
1: with a focus at the local,
0: national and global levels.
1: Welcome to episode 28 of Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan, and the conversation you're about to listen to concerns the cost of living crisis, which is facing millions of families across the UK. As we head into the winter, households have been battered by huge increases in electricity and gas prices. The cost of vehicle fuel is spiking, and this is all in the wake of the government's decision in October to remove the £20 uplift to universal credit, which was helping to keep many families afloat. So today my guests and I are going to discuss these issues, we'll explore the many ways financial hardship affects families and we're going to discuss how poverty limits life opportunities and exacerbates many of the problems social workers support people to overcome. With me today are Amanda Bailey, Director of the Northeast Child Poverty Commission, Vicky Waterman, a mum of two and anti-poverty campaigner and Basway UK Vice Chair Lewis Roberts. Amanda, Vicky, Lewis, how you all doing? Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Vicky, first of all, how are you?
2: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, excited to get started.
1: Good stuff, good stuff. And uh, Vicky, whereabouts are you at the moment?
2: So I'm in um northwest Durham. So I'm in a town called Consett at the moment. It's quite snowy at the moment as well, but yeah, so I'm just sat here.
1: Well, welcome. Thank you so much, Vicky, for joining us. Lewis, how are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm good, Andy. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh how
1: are you? Oh, I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. Thanks for asking. I don't often get asked how I am when we do these introductions. So yes, I'm, I'm fine. And I'm, I'm well, and uh, I'm in East Belfast, as I always am. Lewis, you're somewhere, uh, you're, are you right in the middle of Newcastle? Is that right?
3: Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm in Newcastle, uh, live in Newcastle. Um, I've just, we're joking that I've got me uh, thermal socks on, surviving the cold. Uh, and we've been surviving the wind, haven't we? Uh, of late, so where I live, there's uh, wheelie bins uh, strewn all over the, the back back alleys. So that's what I can see at the moment.
1: And I and I, I know it's a stereotype, but I, I always had the impression that Geordies were really kind of hardened lot. You you are feeling the cold, yeah?
3: Oh no, definitely feeling the cold. I think we're hitting a, a, a cheeky four degrees today. So
1: okay. Um, and Amanda, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I'm in my thermal tights as well. And looking forward to replacing various bits of my roof. Oh, is that right? Over the weekend. Oh, yes. that is no
1: fun. That happened to us a while ago. It's it's not it's not nice at all. Um, are you are you in uh, are you in Newcastle University at the moment? Is that where you are? I am. Yes. Yeah. Okay, welcome, welcome. Um, now, to set the scene for our discussion, Lewis, I want to invite you to share. I want to invite you to share some headline findings from Citizens Advice. They published some research last week, and they're calling this the Cost of Living Crunch. I think that would help set us up a bit to to put into context the issues we're going to talk about.
3: Yeah, sure, that, that's no problem at all. Um, yeah, so some research came out last week. I think it's really helpful for us to to think about that. Um, so Citizens Advice. They've published research telling us that one in 10 of all families are uh, facing a financial crisis this winter, and that's over 3 million households. And the research informs us that one in five of all families are already having to make difficult decisions to cut back on essentials. And by that, we mean things like food and heating. And that's over 6 million households. So this research tells us that a third of people at the moment, so that's today, are worried about paying their bills this winter and that. That rises to nearly half of people on low incomes. One in 10 people are anticipating accessing crisis support this winter, like food banks or fuel vouchers. So that's 400,000 households that are left with just £50 per month once bills are paid. So low-income families are facing a triple whammy this winter, with the government cutting universal credit by £20 a week, the cost of energy soaring and rising inflation impacting everyday living costs for many.
1: Thanks, Lewis. That's one in 10 people anticipating accessing crisis support this winter. And the UK is the fifth largest economy in the world. I think we just need to remember that. That's one in 10 people in our country that are needing to access crisis support this winter. I find that really hard to, to, to you know, to, well, I don't accept that. I don't think that's right. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next 45 minutes. So thank you, Lewis. Um, I also want to set the scene concerning the impacts poverty has on the lives of people across the UK. Amanda, could you tell us a bit about how many people... In the UK, are currently living in poverty.
0: Yeah, I mean, and one thing that's important to highlight is that Lewis has obviously touched on some kind of current research around the picture that facing families now. But there's actually always a bit of a time lag with figures, official poverty figures. So the figures that we have um, are deeply concerning, uh, both nationally and and for us here in the northeast. But actually, they re- relate to the situation pre-pandemic, before before we had this you know huge um income shock facing many families and even before the pandemic you know um 14 and a half million people that's 22% of all people in the UK were living below the poverty line pre-pandemic but that figure is much higher for children um 31% of all children across the UK were living in poverty before the pandemic and if it helps to kind of visualize that better that's just over nine children in every classroom of 30 um and I, yeah that uh, and what's worrying for me is that that was the picture going into the pandemic and that was um a worsening trajectory if you like because that 4.3 million figure was 200,000 worse than the year before and 700,000 worse than 2012 so going into the pandemic we had rising child and family poverty we were in a bad place as a country um There is data around that we can have a look at. Um, Obviously, a lot of organisations have done quite a lot of research around the impact of of COVID-19 on family incomes and people's circumstances. But, for example, we know that there's been a huge increase in the number of children eligible for free school meals, particularly in the North East. And that's some of the information that we can use. But in terms of the poverty figures, we still don't even know yet what the official figures look like after COVID-19.
1: Thank you, Amanda. And you guys are all based in the northeast of England. Can you tell us a bit about the context or specific issues, Amanda, relating to the northeast and what poverty is like there? Yeah,
0: sure. So as I said, 31% of children, all children, young people in the UK were living in poverty before the pandemic. But actually that figure is 37% for the northeast. And that means we have the second highest rate of child poverty just behind London. But actually I think of particular concern for our region was that we'd seen the steepest increases in child poverty in the kind of five years leading into the pandemic. So really steep increases for every every part of the northeast, East. Um, and there are particular issues for our region, specifically around low paid work and insecure work, but also we have higher rates of unemployment um, than other parts of the country. And I think we've been disproportionately impacted by cuts to the welfare or social security system. Over the last decade,
1: and going back sort of over you know the, the past decades, you know um, history of industrial decline. There was a lot of shipbuilding, mining, engineering in the northeast. Is that largely gone? Uh,
0: we still have a strong manufacturing base and a really strong engineering base. But I think one of the big challenges for the northeast has always been um, the limited routes for progression in work. So that we have that we have a high rate of unemployment, but then the work that is available. Uh, there are fewer routes for progression into higher paid work, and I think that's that's been one of the big challenges. Uh, and therefore, often we get people leaving the region to find economic opportunities elsewhere.
1: Okay, so is there does there tend to be a big exodus um, from the region?
0: I think there has been historically. Certainly, that's been a big um, challenge for the Northeast. Is that often people will leave the region um, to go elsewhere, and then that results in challenges in other parts of the country as I mentioned London has a particularly high rate of child poverty but that's for different reasons than the ones that we have but I think they kind of feed off each other in a way um, because one of the challenges in London is the issues around high housing costs due to really high demand in London because London sucks a lot of economic activity from the rest of the country towards it because the way the country is slightly imbalanced or not slightly imbalanced completely imbalanced so that's one of the issues as well.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Now, we know that rates of poverty are particularly high for lone parents and their children and Child Poverty Action Group, um, they indicate that 49% of children living in lone parent families are in poverty. And I'm going to refer back to the Child Poverty Action Group probably a few times in this episode because they've been very helpful in terms of some of the statistics they produce. But Vicky, can you tell me about the challenges you face as a parent?
2: Yeah, um, I've been a single parent for five years almost um, through no choice of my own. Um, and I had two young daughters um, at the time when I became a single parent. One of them was only a few months old um, and the other one was two. So from then trying to then go back into work, um, I found um, childcare, upfront childcare costs through universal credit were a huge, huge impact on me. Um, I was expected to pay £1,400 for childcare for both of my children up front before I stepped foot back into the workplace after having my second daughter um and as a somebody that's just become a single parent and is struggling to make ends meet anyway and then that changing your circumstances having to then go trying to get back to work cuz i was thinking that i was doing you know the right thing for the family it was the right thing for myself getting myself back into the workplace and then just finding out that i needed to pay this huge amount of money up front um at the time i was only earning 900 pounds a month anyway cuz i was only working part time as a receptionist in a dental's practice um so i got into into debt from childcare costs initially so that's a, a huge issue first of all um particularly for single parent households um I, I work full-time now um in a better role I've, I have managed to progress within the company that I was working for but it's still a massive issue you know it's next to impossible to raise two children on one income in the northeast particularly whether you're on you know um living wage slightly above living wage it's still it's Still, almost impossible to do. So, I do still receive some universal credit top-up benefits, and I wouldn't be able to live and feed my children if we didn't we didn't get that.
1: And Vicky, I think it was back in twenty nineteen, you briefed the Work and Pensions Committee at Westminster about this very issue, and you were talking about the costs, the upfront costs of childcare. When you were explaining that to MPs at Westminster, was this coming as a surprise to them? Do you feel they were aware of these issues?
2: Um, I think they are aware of the impact that childcare costs have. I don't think they were aware of, I feel as if they're they're kind of very much in their own little bubble and if something doesn't affect them directly, they're not as inclined to, to pursue it at all. Um, we have actually, back in September, I was again in Westminster and speaking to the Department of Work and Pensions Select Committee about um, the uplift. But... Childcare also came up then. So there was actually an inquiry launched last week from the Work and Pension Select Committee um, with regards to upfront childcare costs through universal credit. Now, Stephen Timms and Siobhan Bailey have very much pushed for this. um, And we briefly spoke kind of afterwards um, off the record about it as well to them. And so, you know, the the inquiry is, is very much welcome.
1: Vicky, you, you said um, earlier on that when you were going back to work, you had to find £1,400 I think up front um, to pay for your childcare. That's a huge amount of money for anybody. It's a huge amount of money, particularly for somebody who is having to claim universal credit uh, in the first place. But I suppose the question I have there is, do you know about people borrowing money from lenders that may be less reputable, that may be actually you know very expensive places to borrow money from just to, to get that, that cash?
2: absolutely so at the time that's when I became involved in campaigning um and discussing this because I was thinking this can't be right surely this is not right um so that's when I got involved with you know the the make childcare work campaign which has progressed since then um and within that there's now a group of of other single parents that we discuss this with and a lot of them have got into debt from childcare. now some of them have borrowed money from you know Family members, friends, some of them have been able to take um manage to take loans out from universal credit, but that's on a case-by-case basis quite often. And now and again you'll ring them up and you know somebody will say, Oh, yeah, you can do this, and then you'll go put your foot to another line and it's just not possible. Um, I feel like the universal credit system as a whole is is quite complicated anyway. Um, but even if you do do that, it still comes off your award for the following months anyway. So you're constantly paying catch up. Um, I also know of parents that have taken out loans from very high interest loans you know like we're talking provident loans payday loans that type of thing and then got into increasing debt from that as well so i mean i it took me a year and a half to pay i borrowed from a family member to be able to do that and it took me a year and a half to pay it back anyway so yeah i mean it is a huge issue because you know we're not just talking about you know household costs day to day we're also discussing um any any prior debt as well if you're running a household and you're used to having two incomes and suddenly you're down to one that has a massive impact on the way you live anyway but sometimes you you know you're getting yourself into debt because you're trying to still give your children what they were were expecting in the last few years before you became a single parent you might need to then move house and that type of thing so all of these debts are accumulating so we're not just talking this is how much money we've got left at the end of the month now one again, it, you know, it's a minus because you're also paying prior debts as well anyway.
1: And in relation to the 20 point uplift, you said you were um, briefing Working Pensions Committee more recently in relation to that. So the 20 point uplift was taken away in October this year. Um, it was replaced. Uh, the government sought to, I suppose, mitigate the impact of that by changing the universal credit taper rate for working claimants. That's complicated. It's it's a it's a difficult issue to un- uh, understand. Now, that's just, I believe, just taken effect in terms of the change to the taper rate. rate. Vicky, I... Do you think people are aware of quite how that's going to affect their finances?
2: No. Um, I think it's another a way that again, it's something else that's overly complicated. So I feel like claimants of universal credit, unless you, you really look into it and you, you know, you do your sums and all of this kind of stuff. I don't think people are aware of how it'll actually affect them. It does mean that you get to keep more of your, your earnings, basically. Um, but it it's not. The same as the twenty pound uplift. For example, it is only for working claimants. There are a whole there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the north east that are unable to work for various reasons because of disabilities, you know, because they're caring for people, um, and, and various other reasons. This doesn't affect them, so the taper rate doesn't affect them. It's it's not gone far enough to help everybody that needs it.
1: Yeah, I think it's three million people that aren't going to be helped by the change to the taper rate. That didn't get enough attention in terms of the government's announcement. Did feel smoke and mirrors certainly in terms of how that was presented. I want to move on though Amanda and and talk about the long-term impacts on children of growing up in poverty. I'm sure that's something you can speak at length about but you know in terms of if we could kind of keep to the kind of top line issues what what are the impacts um, on children of growing up in poverty?
0: Well you know we know there's a huge amount of evidence um, and research around, around the impacts of that, and we know that the impacts can be lifelong and actually very serious indeed, and that can start actually before birth. Um, there are very clear links between um, babies born into to poverty and deprivation and infant mortality, so that's children dying before the age of one. Um, but then on to things like cognitive and, and social and emotional development, um, educational outcomes, employment opportunities children's physical and physical health and mental well-being, um the likelihood of being an adult uh, in poverty as an adult which then obviously affects your future children and then actually towards the end of your life it impacts your life expectancy as well so it you know it affects the entire life course uh, in a very serious way
1: and Amanda do you have so just starting at the very start um, impacts on infant mortality rates do we know what those impacts are can that be quantified
0: there has been some research done um by For example, Professor Claire Bamber at Newcastle University, along with colleagues from other universities, they produced a piece of research towards the end of 2019, I think, um, which looked at the the fact that there's been an an unprecedented rise in infant mortality rates in England, and they were able to map that against the areas where there had been increases in child poverty and there were very clear um, links between between the two. And they were able to identify, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, the number of children... That may have um, died as a result of being born into poverty, which, as you said, in the in the fifth largest economy in the world, is a quite a shocking place to be.
1: I say it's a scandal. Yeah. It is, and, and in terms of like right through then to life expectancy, do we have? Uh, do we know what the impacts there are in terms of can that be quantified in terms of numbers of years that people lose off their lives?
0: We know, and an, another. Um, a large amount of research has been done on this, um, quite high-profile work by Professor Sir Michael Marmot about the, the determinants of health. Um, and it's quite clear even within parts of the Northeast, you know, you can compare different parts of Newcastle or different parts of the Northeast where someone born in one part of Newcastle could be having a, a life expectancy of, of 10 years more than in someone in a more deprived part of Newcastle. And also it's about healthy life expectancy as well, not just the, the point at which people may die, but what is the, the the life expectancy in which they'll be in good health and and that's reduced as well by being in, in poverty and deprivation.
1: Thanks, Amanda. So that's all human costs, but there are also financial costs. So uh, I, back in February, I made an episode of the podcast with Sophie House, who's head of policy at the Child Poverty Action Group, and we really looked into various aspects of universal credit in that episode. But we also touched on, um, it was some research conducted by Joseph Rowntree Foundation back in 2016. So the report, uh, We Can Solve Poverty in the UK, I'll I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to to read up on it. It estimated that £78 billion of public money was spent annually in the UK to deal with poverty and its consequences. 78 billion pounds annually. And the UK government's total expenditure in 2016 was 772 billion. So that's a huge, huge proportion of public money being spent to address the impacts of poverty. So that would have been uh, issues in health, social work, criminal justice, educational underachievement, all those issues. Um, And, you know, it begs the question, we're just, we're throwing money away by not addressing um, the causes of poverty. But Amanda, I'm aware that there's been some much more recently published research um, looking at the cost specifically of child poverty and it was authored by Professor Donald Hirsch from Loughborough University. Can you tell me a bit about what that found?
0: Yes, I mean, it's obviously really important to emphasise and actually Donald Hirsch's report emphasises that we can't, you know, it's totally impossible to put a, an estimate on the sort of human costs of child poverty but he's tried to look at what the costs to the country are as a whole in the public purse Bearing in mind that we know, as I said, that those growing up in poverty are likely to earn less in adult life and therefore pay less tax and also more likely to need public support. But also that there's substantially higher public spending in areas where you have higher rates of child poverty because of the impacts of poverty, for example, through the NHS that requires greater expenditure and, as you mentioned, through social services interventions. And so it's a piece of work that has been done previously. And back in 2008, when it was first done, um, he put an estimated cost to the UK of child poverty as being £25 billion a year. That was updated in 2013 um, to be put at £30 billion a year. And then most recently, this autumn, he published uh, his estimates. And he always says that this is a very cautious estimate, um, of the estimate now being it's almost £38 billion a year, the cost to the UK of child poverty, which importantly says you know, that enormous cost to the country demonstrates that even quite high-cost interventions to reduce child poverty or having a child poverty strategy would more than pay for itself in you know, the short, medium, and long term for the country.
1: It's absolutely staggering. I think to put that into context, it's, that's about three times the, the Northern Ireland block grant annually that is is the cost of child poverty across the whole of the uk that's absolutely staggering um Lewis, the final report of the Child Welfare Inequalities Project, um, that was led by Professor Paul Bywaters. I'm sure a lot of people listening will be familiar with that. For anyone who's not, again, I'll put a link in the show notes for people to, to read that report. The, the, the final report, I believe, was put, published in July 2020, and it found that children in the most deprived 10% of small neighbourhoods in the UK are over 10 times more likely to be in foster or residential care or on protection plans than children in the least deprived uh, 10% um, of neighbourhoods. You know, that, again... That is a shocking finding, the impacts that poverty is having on the life opportunities of young people. But Lewis, I want to talk to you about the problems that social workers are encountering, which are either the result of poverty or made worse because of poverty. What are you and your colleagues seeing um, at Frontline?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think go back to the point there about about the the research. It is truly shocking, isn't it? And I think uh, that research, the Child Welfare Inequalities Project research, it's worth just uh, pausing for a moment and, and, and taking stock on that research. And I have just taken a short quote from that, that I think helps to set the scene. And then I'll go on to talk a little bit about what social workers are seeing uh, and and, and, and observing uh, within our communities. Professor Breej Featherstone, she's a, a key academic within this work. And she writes that underpinning international human rights is the belief that everyone is born equal. No child is more valuable than another. It is unfair if... Because of circumstances beyond their control, built into the structures of society, some children are more likely to be abused or neglected. It's unfair if, because of the consequences of unequal social structures, some children miss out on family life with their birth parents and siblings through being in care. This is what we mean by inequalities of child welfare. So I think it's really important that we don't, we don't lose sight of human rights and social justice here, and that's what this is about. So going back to your question, what are the problems that we encounter Uh, linked to poverty? Well, I think basically we see children and families living in very unequal circumstances. We work with families who are disproportionately impacted by poverty. And in my time as a social worker, I I struggle to recall an occasion where families haven't been experiencing and and surviving poverty. Um, So it could be something linked to where I work and where I live. You know, we've touched touched on this in this uh, podcast already about post-industrial decline. Uh, But I don't think that is Uh, uh, an unusual experience. When I speak to other social work colleagues, I don't think I am an outlier. I think this is what we do see. Um, We see families without material resources to thrive and we often work with families who are unable to lead a dignified life. We see homes that aren't fit to live in, often damp and cold. We see communities which have been neglected with high levels of crime and antisocial behaviour and we see families without the money to feed their children properly and the money to keep themselves warm. We see parents struggling to access work, and often when I do see parents uh, able to access work, it's poorly paid, it's insecure, um, and and it lacks you know the lack basic employment rights. Go on, Andy. Sorry.
1: Oh, sorry. No, I was, I was just going to come in there, and because we we're talking about work as well, and and to tie it in with mental health, you know, so the stresses of being in poverty and exacerbating mental health problems, but also the importance that people are in work that's actually meaningful work, because you know we know that work um, benefits people's mental health as long as it's meaningful work as long as it's well paid work as long as it's rewarding work um the mental health foundation um they find that children and adults living in households in the lowest 20% income bracket in in gb um, are two to three times more likely to develop mental health problems than those in the highest income brackets you know so that that's one clear example i am just i'm keen vicky um I, I don't want you to to you know share if you're not comfortable but in terms of the the, the situation you find in how did you experience uh, handling the stress and, and and anxiety that that brought on
2: um there's been points when it has been a real struggle to be able to um, not only, first of all, access any type of health, help through universal credit, um, but to be able to kind of continue to work and raise two children and run a home whilst also fighting for what I'm supposedly entitled to was a, a real struggle at the beginning. Um, once I kind of got in a little bit of more of a routine with that, managed to progress a little bit at work, you know. The issue, again, with universal credit and childcare is the upfront costs also mean that your universal credit income can then not necessarily be stable. So if you're paying for your childcare upfront, you're claiming it back up to five weeks later. um, And then, you know, you use that, what you get back five weeks later to pay for the next month's worth of childcare. And that's how it goes on. The difference is when your child is... um, entitled to some free hours through their childcare, care and then it's um the six weeks holidays or it's the half term you they don't get entitled to free hours in the half term now I, I work I don't just work term time so then I would have to pay the full amount of childcare care for that week that they were off or that two weeks that they were off depending on how long they were off um, so then again I'm finding the extra however many hundred pounds to pay for the full lot up front before I can then claim it back again five weeks later so that is was a huge, huge issue when both of my children were in childcare because I'm constantly trying to think, you know, three, four weeks ahead for money, put money aside for this. At the points where, and now and again, there are still points where my worst nightmare is one of my children coming home with a party invitation because I know I can't afford to get them whatever outfit they're going to need. Is it a fancy dress? Are they going to, you know, is, is there a theme? Are they going to need to get a card and a present and get them there and get them back? And depending on what point in the month that is and how soon away it is from when I get the invitation on my hand, you know, that causes a real panic, which is absolutely shocking. So, I mean, that, and for me, school clubs is another thing I can't afford even now to send either of my children to, you know, after-school clubs, really. They don't go swimming, they don't go to brownies or, you know, gymnastics or anything like that. Unfortunately, that's just something that I can't stretch to. Um, And the parental guilt from that, as well as the mental health impact on still being able to make sure it, I'm, I'm at work and do everything at work that I love. I adore my job. I really do. But doing that and then also dealing with everything at home and the financial stress is huge.
1: Vicky, thanks so much for sharing that. That's really, really helpful. And, and it's very brave for you to share that as well. Um, Lewis, just coming back then to the, the social work perspective, you know, aside from mental health, you know, kids that are being taken into um, the care system um, or kids that are growing up in poverty are more likely to find themselves uh, in the care system. You know, what, what are the reasons for that?
3: So, I mean, touching on what, what Vicky's shared there, um, the, press, the pressures and stresses of supporting uh, a family when you're always having to worry about money, worry about the, the practical uh, aspects of life. It's huge um, and it's, it's, it's a very natural human process. You know, we all have different ways of managing stress. And, and from my experience um, of, of, of working in communities uh, and, and with, with parents on low income, sometimes that stress, as you say, can, can impact mental health. It can sometimes uh, lead to addiction problems. So sometimes, uh, particularly in child protection services, we do uh, work with uh, families where parents uh, may have addiction issues around alcohol and, and, and drug use as a, as a, a way of managing. That stress. Um, so for social workers, sometimes a picture can be a, a complex one, and it's about unpicking all of these different factors that are at play, um, and, and looking for uh, looking for the you know what are the root causes of of of, of what's being presented, and not just simply blaming individuals for for the behavior that's in front of us it's about saying well you know what has led to this family getting in, in, into the circumstances that they're in
1: and how you switched on our social workers in terms of understanding the impacts that poverty is having on people's lives Lewis how are people making those connections I mean I, I mean and, and sorry just before you answer does that is there actually that tendency to blame the individual is that what people are doing you know in practice
3: well I think we have to be really grounded and honest about about social workers as a profession about uh, we're a group of people aren't we and we all have different uh, worldviews different perspectives uh, and we're not immune from wider changes in society um, and I would say that some social workers are very uh, aligned and switched on to these issues some perhaps less so um, I think all social workers have worked with families um, and people living with poverty um, but do all social workers have a, a, a full and grounded understanding of what's going on, I'd, I'd, I'd say perhaps not. Um, in society, we've moved to more individual responsibility. You know, we, we've shifted, haven't we, uh, in terms of neoliberalism? Um, and I think some, some social workers and, and, and services uh, can can be drawn into into that way of thinking.
1: In terms of in terms of good social work practice, then, Lewis, in terms of working with children and families, uh, and making links between family material circumstances and other family stress factors. What does that look like in terms of good social work practice? You know, I'm, I'm guessing having time to spend with families and actually understand their circumstances is key to that. And we all know how stretched social workers are in terms of bureaucracy and time to actually spend face to face.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, what, what I would encourage colleagues to to uh, draw on on some of the guidance and and, and advice that we're given. As a social work professional, so uh, Baswell has a a, a superb anti poverty practice guide for social work, and I'd encourage uh, anybody listening to that who's a social worker to to reflect on that. And I think you're right. We need to be working relationally with with people. We need to have the time and space to um, to build relationships to uh, understand what somebody's every everyday uh, reality is. You know, what is a what is a day like for for a child or a, a parent in this family, uh, and what are the uh, the issues that they're facing. And often those issues are, 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 are very practical issues. Um, you know, not enough money. Uh, there might be a broken washing machine, uh, you know, accommodation, housing that isn't fit for purpose. Um, but I think as a profession, we have got to be very careful not to lose sight of those issues um, and, and just to be drawn into sort of behavioural factors and, and, and how we can support people to get on better with one another. I think as well as relationships, I think we need to be basing ourselves within communities. I think as a profession, we've moved away from uh, the places we need to be. Um, So I I very much advocate for a community-based approach. Um, And I think the COVID pandemic gives us a really good opportunity to to reclaim some of those spaces. Uh, We're seeing local authority offices closing. um, And I'd encourage uh, council leaders to be thinking about how can we get professionals and practitioners into community spaces where they can better meet the needs of Of the people that we work with. Um, And then I suppose suppose finally, it's about advocacy. It's about social workers not seeing issues of poverty, uh, of uh, families, material circumstances as uh, someone else's business. I think it needs to be our core business. And I think uh, social workers need to have a good understanding of uh, social security systems and be able to advocate for children and families and offer practical support. And that means going along to benefits appeals. It means uh, taking people to the places they need to be, not seeing that as someone else's job.
1: And it is, it is super complicated, as Vicky was saying earlier on, though, in terms of just understanding universal credit. I know in terms of my campaigning work, when I started to look into welfare reform and benefit system, I thought it would be straightforward. It's anything but. Amanda, you you were keen to come in there?
0: Yeah, I was just also going to add on to sort of what Lewis was saying, that actually also recognising that social workers are part of usually generally a larger organisation. And often, I know certainly in the northeast of England, that um, many local authorities invest quite heavily in their... Um, income maximisation teams or financial inclusion teams who, and it's making sure, I guess, that the work of social workers is actually joined up with that of their colleagues in other parts of the council so that, you know, if you are engaging with families who clearly are um, in dire financial circumstances, ensuring that they are. Claiming everything that they're entitled to because that's not always the case or that they understand what they might be entitled to and putting them in in contact with that support that does exist. Um, Clearly, you know, there there are massive, massive challenges with the social security system. But we do need to ensure that every family is receiving everything that they're entitled to and they get the support to do that.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Vicky, as someone who receives um, social security support, have you any perspective you'd like to share?
2: Um, I do feel like when we're talking, we've touched on there briefly about local authority as well. Um, And that's something that's also been um, something that I've kind of dealt with recently, as I I said previously, and I don't mind sharing. Um, I've been homeless for the last six months um, and it's just this morning that I've moved into a new property. Um, My previous landlord had to sell her property because um, of the impact the COVID pandemic had on her business Um, and I had nowhere else to go got into contact with the local authority and just didn't really receive much help at all. I did have to give them a hell of a lot of information um, numerous times to different departments, speak to various people. Um, When I've gone back, you know, it's been more than 30 emails back and forth in the six months that I've been homeless, probably the same amount of phone calls from the majority from me to them Um, and not really got anywhere at all with any type of housing support or direction or help them at all um and just speaking to different departments and then having to relay that information back to them again so for the last six months I have been sleep- sleeping in uh my sister's spare room in one bed with both of my children um which has been a lot um so I'm thrilled that you know I found a new property but that was something that I've found myself and I've organize myself and I didn't really receive any extra support from anybody at all there was nobody that I could really ask as far as my local authority was concerned because I was working I wasn't really the highest of their priority list so you know I'm earning some money so I should be able to kind of sort all of that stuff out myself Um, which you know I have managed to do eventually but it's taken six months of real struggles to be able to get there so I do think we need to kind of start joining the dots a little bit more. It's not just the universal credit system is one system and then the local authority system is something completely different. Um, People do need to start kind of talking to each other because the people falling through the cracks again and again and again.
1: And thank you, Vicky. Just a curiosity, is there a housing shortage in the northeast the way there is in other parts of the UK? Is that a big pressure at the moment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I did manage to get on to... Um, the council list, I think it is, where you kind of bid for for properties. Um, And, you know, one was coming up once a week and I was, you know, 20th to 40th in the queue for it every single time. So, yeah, I would assume that's that's the case.
1: Lewis, just following on from what Vicky was saying there, you know, are are senior leaders in social work structuring services to address the impacts that poverty's having?
3: It's an interesting one. Um, I think the additional pressures that some local authorities are facing are perhaps encouraging some senior leaders to be more vocal and outspoken on issues of poverty. Um, I think we're coming on the, the back of you know, almost 12 years of uh, government austerity uh, policies and the, the situation that we've already heard from, from Amanda and from Vicky are, are dire and I think we're starting to see again more leaders coming out and, and recognising the links between uh, families, uh, financial circumstances. And outcomes within services. I think we're starting to see uh, more thought and insight into how can we make services uh, more, more dignified and, and decent and sensitive. Um, and I certainly have some examples uh, of that. Can leaders do more? I think, I think certainly they can. I think we can take it, take it further. I think we're seeing some really good examples of uh, children and family services um, introducing new models and ways of, of, of being, a new sort of cultural approaches, uh, a a way of treating families with more uh, respect. Um, But I would like to see some of those models go even further and consider, um, you know, the practical aspects of of families' everyday existence more. Um, I mean, I'll give some examples of things that social workers uh, could have in their toolkit. Please do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see social workers have free and ready access to small pockets of, of money, that they can directly give families, and they should be the person allowed to make that judgment. I think sometimes, uh, particularly in my social work practice, I've had to beg and borrow to get £10, £20 pounds for gas and electric for families who are in desperate crisis situations, and that shouldn't be the case. You know, We should be able to advocate for families and, and make those professional judgments um, without having to jump through bureaucratic uh, red tape.
1: That's been the case in the past though, hasn't it? When I talk to colleagues, you know, going back 20, 30 years in the past, there was more, um, they did have more flexibility, more scope to, to support in that way. Is that correct?
3: No, absolutely. I mean, when you're in practice, the contradictions are striking in terms of pre-care and post-care. And I don't want to go too deep into this, but I mean, when we're, when we're talking about early intervention and family work, often the battle for practitioners to get resources for families is 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 really difficult there just isn't the, the the funding pots available however when children do come into care and teenagers come into care which is my my area of of practice um often the, the the money is far more forthcoming you know i see emails from social workers desperately trying to get push chairs and winter coats for families but then when children come into care we seem very happy to uh, spend several thousand pounds per week on, on, you know, on their care, in, in residential care, for example, hundreds of thousand pounds per year. So there definitely needs to be a rebalance in terms of how we support uh, children and families within, within communities and within their own families.
1: Just on that point, just a, a bit of a segue, but your, your work is, yes, with young people coming into care. I'm just thinking of the, the Welsh government. One of the, the anti-poverty measures there trialling is um, universal basic income. And I think that the trial group they're going to be looking at uh, is young people leaving care. That's quite an interesting um, initiative. And it shows, I suppose, what can be done where a government is minded to actually address poverty. You know, this, this stuff happens in Scotland and Northern Ireland that's much more progressive than what's happening in England, where these issues are handled exclusively by the Westminster government. So Amanda, yes, I mean, you, you're an expert in terms of these issues, in terms of interventions and, and what government can do. Let's look at Scotland. Scotland. The Scottish government introduced the Scottish child payment. Was that was that earlier this year in 2021, if I got that right?
0: Yes, I think they were planning to introduce it earlier, but it was pushed back because of the pandemic. Yes. Um,
1: and it's a t- £10 pounds a week for every child under six, for low-income households, is that right? Yes,
0: and that's recognition of the fact that children, families with children have higher costs, uh, living costs than, than families without children by and large. And they've announced that they're going to be doubling that amount as well, which is, is clearly really welcome. Um, One of the things that we've campaigned for and many other organisations have campaigned for, for example, is a meaningful increase in child benefits because that that is the benefit that was introduced to recognise the additional costs that families face. And we think that should be increased by at least £10 per child per week. Um, After quite a long time, it's gone up either just by inflation or it's been frozen, which means it's lost 23% of its value since 2010. And even when it's gone up by inflation, it's only gone up by about 10 pence per child per week or five pence for, for a second child, which is you know clearly not going to do very much. And, and so it is important that governments do recognise that families with children have additional costs. And I think child benefit for me is one of the most meaningful ways of doing that.
1: And the Welsh government, they've also pledged to introduce free school meals for all primary school age children. I think that was just this week. That was a nice, wasn't it, with the, the Labour-implied sort of agreement?
0: Yes, and and again, that's something they're looking at in Scotland. And as you've contrasted, that the picture in Scotland and Wales can be quite different to that in England, um, that the Scottish and Welsh governments are much more proactive on these issues, in particular around child poverty and have a child poverty strategy. Um, we know, for example, that the, you know, the threshold in England uh, for free school meals is far too low at the moment and actually... We did a bit a piece of research with the CPAG, the Child Poverty Action Group and Children Northeast, which found that about one in four children living in poverty in the Northeast aren't eligible for free school meals because the threshold is just so low at the moment. So that there's been a lot of campaigning around, even if we don't make it universal, certainly increasing the threshold much more um, so that it incorporates many more children and really does support all of those families who are affected by food insecurity Um, because at the moment it's effectively an out-of-work benefit um, because the threshold's so low, but as we've heard, the vast majority of children that are living in poverty are in working families.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And then just to kind of do the full house in Northern Ireland, we have the welfare reform mitigations package, which was brought in in 2016. And since actually just very, very recently it has been extended until 2025, Um, Basel in Northern Ireland, we've been part of a, a coalition campaigning for the extension of those mitigations. So that covers, um, addresses the bedroom tax and the benefit cap in Northern Ireland. And our communities ministers also announced that a review into the package with the potential we 're hoping to look at the two child limits amongst several other aspects, so it shows what can be done by devolved governments where there is political will it 's expensive though that 's the thing um, but it does come back then to the point I made earlier about the cost of not addressing poverty. You know the costs that that, that are that fall to Department for health department for education department for justice um, when those um, when those issues are, are left to lead to other social problems. Lewis, we, we spoke earlier about the um, the Child Welfare inequalities Project and you had a quote I think from it, you uh, quoted Breeze Featherstone, but I'm going to quote from it as well. Um, so in that report, an argument is made, mm-hmm. this is the beginning of the quote, a social welfare system reflects the society in which it operates, its assumptions, priorities and attitudes to children. Parents and family life. It also reflects the role of the state: how policy is made, the values that underpin policy, the power it exercises over its citizens, how it manages and polices that power, and what it counts as success. So, in recent years, we've seen big cuts to the social security um, system, and uh, we also saw the the introduction of the twenty point uplift, and then the removal of that twenty point uplift. Now, none of us are particularly old, so um, I'm kind of I'm going to ask you to kind of think this in terms of conversations you might have had with colleagues or um, Amanda in terms of your academic work. If we think back. Back to what things were like 15 or 20 years ago. Do you think that as a society we care less now about the needs of children and low-income families than we did back perhaps in the in the 90s?
0: Um, I don't think as a society we care less. And I think perhaps um, the last 12 to 18 months, I think people have shown that they care quite deeply about what happens to children Um And obviously a lot of that has been very vocalised and led by Marcus Rashford, for example. But there's been really big response to that, whether that continues after the pandemic um, will be interesting to see. But I think we see that every year. You know, I was thinking about children in need, that every year people feel really moved by that and really do feel quite um, strongly that it's not right that some children um, have fewer opportunities than others. I think, for me, the challenges around... um, not society necessarily, but the way in which the, perhaps the government supports children and young people and families. And I often refer to this, but I sort of compare the situation I remember as a child growing up in the, the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, I remember, for example, it was quite normal when I went to a supermarket to see collections for the local cat and dog shelter. That was normal part of my childhood. For my children it's a completely normal part of their childhood for there to be collections for the food bank and that I think is something that's changed in the last 10 years that that has now become a completely normal um, institutionalized part of the country that we just almost accept that um, food banks are here to stay and ever-increasing numbers of families will have to use them Um, And if you look at, I looked at the figures, and this is just for the Trussell Trust, not for any other food banks or all the independent stuff that exists. In 2014-15, the Trussell Trust Network um, distributed almost 400,000 emergency food parcels to children. And in 2020-21, that was almost a million. And obviously we've had the pandemic in the meantime, but that figure was going up exponentially before the pandemic hit. And that's, that's challenging, I think.
1: Yeah, I just want to press into that, though, because I'm, I'm keen certainly to hear from Vicky and Lewis as well. But, you know, you're saying society doesn't care, um, doesn't, sorry, hasn't changed, society still cares. Society, the citizenry, we elect the government that devises the policies that lead to your reliance on food banks that strip back the welfare state. And it comes back, you know, all the way back to the kind of the David Cameron big society uh, initiative nonsense, if you want to call it that, where it is this expectation that government won't do as much and society will do more. So it's good that we have, we care as as a, as a population to support food banks, but do we care enough to elect government that doesn't necessitate the need to rely on food banks? That's the question. I said that was the question. It was a bit of a rant. Uh, Vicky, do you want to respond?
2: I think what we need to remember is, you know, poverty doesn't really look like it used to. Um, and it's completely different now to what, you know, my parents would remember as poverty looking like what my grandparents would remember poverty looking like. Um, you know, people still get up, they get dressed, they still go and work a full time job. Um, they come back, they can't put the heat on, they're struggling to feed them ch- their children, and they're still at a food bank. And that's the difference. People don't really see poverty as much on the outside world anymore. Poverty is very much something that's kind of kept close to their chest. Um, you know, and it's 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 kind of a shameful a shameful position to be in um so yeah i mean the face of poverty has changed dramatically and i think you know people think it's something that happens to other people in other parts of the world or other parts of the country and it's not re- they don't realize that you know the, their next door neighbor might be struggling or the person down the road or one of their work colleagues or you know their a member of their family because it's not something that's widely talked about to the level that it probably should be and therefore I think that has an impact on the way that people do vote when it comes to election time they don't really see it as much as they should
1: that's incredibly helpful and Amanda you had a stat earlier on that I just can't bring to mind it was about in work poverty
0: yeah I mean before the pandemic across the UK 75% of children in poverty were from working families uh, which clearly demonstrates that work just doesn't pay for far too many for me. and I think Vicky's absolutely right on that it's um For a lot of people, it's is something that happens to other people, and maybe one of the effects of the pandemic, it's maybe a bit hard to say, is that actually demonstrates that people can face difficult circumstances quite quickly, you know, things can change very quickly. And it's not always easy, you you know, a lot of the government's sort of social security policies are based on the premise that you, when you have your children, can plan your financial circumstances for the next 18 years of their lives and will know with absolute certainty what your position will be. And that just isn't the case for all sorts of different reasons, whether that's relationships breaking down, mental health issues, unemployment, a global pandemic, people's circumstances change and the, the question then is, what happens is, you know, do we have that safety net that, that should be there for families so that they can live a dignified, decent life when they're facing difficult times? Uh, and that's the issue. And it's, I guess, getting people to think about that. You know, how, how do we achieve that?
1: Thank you so much, Amanda. And we know that improvements in terms of rates of child poverty can be delivered if it's made a priority. So thinking back to um, I suppose, the first uh, new Labour government, uh, the Blair government, CPAC, Child Poverty Action Group, they highlighted that between 1998 and 2003, because reducing child poverty was made a priority of government and it was accompanied with a comprehensive strategy and investment in children, the number of children in poverty fell by 600,000.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's just really important to emphasise that we've talked about the UK being the fifth largest economy in the world um, and there's nothing inevitable about child poverty or rising child poverty both in the UK and, and here in the northeast. East. Uh, we've mentioned before that we saw steep decreases in child poverty rates um, under previous governments and whilst we had the steepest increases in child poverty in the northeast in the years leading into the pandemic, we also saw the steepest decreases in child poverty and I think it's really important to emphasise that there's, there's nothing inevitable about child poverty in, in one of the largest economies in the world.
1: The UK government, I think you touched on this earlier, haven't had a child poverty strategy since 2017. It's different in the nations because of the nature of devolved government. But putting a, an anti-poverty strategy or an anti-child poverty strategy in place is vital. And I want to talk about what that would actually look like. What needs to go into uh, an anti-poverty strategy or a child poverty strategy for it to prove effective?
0: Well, I think the starting point, first of all, is recognising the importance of having a child poverty strategy, that actually this is something that government, it's government's role to tackle, um, because that isn't in place at the moment, but also recognising that that has to be done across government, it can't be just for one government department, because one of the issues often is that policies just aren't joined up, That something one government department does, they haven't really thought about how it will impact on the, the policies of another department. Um, but having that join-up strategy and having a cabinet minister who's clearly responsible for delivering on it is vital. Um, I think it's also critical that it focuses on raising family incomes because we know that when family incomes go up, child poverty goes down. There has been a tendency to focus on, and, and Lewis has talked about this a bit before, about family behaviour, about other things which aren't a measure of poverty measure of poverty is family income and families' families resources. So that's critical. Um, And then to do that, we need to focus on a whole raft of things that, as I have mentioned before, having a a strong social security system that genuinely provides a safety net to families when they're facing tough times and recognises the additional costs of children. It needs to relentlessly focus on low paid, insecure work, on people having insufficient hours, um, and low pay, fewer route, routes for progression, but also, you know, for the North I've touched on before, unemployment as well and, and removing the barriers to, to, to employment. Um, it has to tackle the sort of major and growing costs for many families around housing, energy costs, childcare, which Vicky's touched on a lot. And there are some really simple things which the government can do to make childcare more, you know, manageable, one of which being the upfront costs issue which to me is just basic common sense um but hasn't been done so far we think it also has to involve investing in the services that children and young people and families use you know we've seen a huge cuts to those over the last decade and then there are things that when we had a child poverty strategy last weren't really an issue but they are now things like digital inclusion because that covers so many aspects or virtually all aspects of every family's life now that, you know, if you're digitally excluded, then you are kind of excluded from from many other things. So that has to be incorporated too.
1: And just out of curiosity, a uh, very quick answer, which department does that need to sit with? And if it needs, to, it needs to span government, what department should be responsible?
0: At the moment, it sits with the Department for Work and Pensions, but clearly Department for Education have a role, Department for Health and Social Care, I would say Culture, Media and Sport with the digital side of things. Um, the community, it was called community, housing communities and local government, it's now levelling up housing and housing in communities but actually what happened and the, when we had a national child poverty strategy that was affected before is it sat within the treasury um, because generally if something sits within the treasury that's um, the government's way of saying this is a, a, you know, a really top priority for us and it's a way of having oversight o- across lots of good, different government departments so It really needs to come right from the top, you know, to say that this is a priority for for government and and we're going to be, you know, held accountable for this as well.
1: Thanks, Amanda. And I just want to just flag up at this stage, we have made two episodes on the independent review of children's social care. And it was incredibly encouraging just preparing for this episode to find out that the the 12 directors of children's services in the northeast, when they made their submission to uh, the independent review of children's social care, They made two key asks, and one of those two key asks was that the Care Review must press government to develop an ambitious cross-departmental strategy to reduce and then end child poverty as part of the levelling up agenda. So it's great to see social work leaders in that sense really uh, championing this this issue. Now, it is time to wrap up, but before we do, I want to ask you all one last question. Child poverty strategy, that's vital. It's a long-term initiative. I want you each to choose a government department and tell me what you would do in the short term. One one key key policy that you would implement in the short term to address or to alleviate um, poverty in the UK. I'm going to go to Amanda first. What would you take? Where would you go?
0: I'm struggling to pick one, I'm afraid. (laughs) Um, Can I combine two increasing child benefit by £10 a week per child and lifting the two-child
1: limit. And you would do that as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, is that right?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Lewis, what do you think? Would you you want to be Department for Education to be looking after social work, children's social work?
3: Uh, I think if I'm honest, I'm not too interested in what department. I suppose I'm looking at just bold, ambitious change. And for me, we we need to stop tinkering about and you know, we've talked a lot about childcare here and the importance of early years for children. So what I would be saying is that we need to find the money and invest in free universal childcare provision. And I think that should not be a barrier to any parent accessing work. Um, and too often we see that. Um, so we need to have high quality, free childcare for all. And it needs to follow uh, children through the, through the life course, through to adulthood.
1: Thank you, Lewis. Thanks, Lewis. That's great. And Vicky, I hope Lewis hasn't stolen your thunder. You're one, <laughs> you're one change.
2: Um, yeah, again, it would be the Department of Work and Pensions. Definitely, you know, as Lewis has just said, high quality free childcare, absolutely huge. That would be such a huge, huge way to get so many people out of, of poverty, particularly working poverty, and get those that aren't working back into work. I think that's a huge barrier. And also free school meals across the board, I think is absolutely vital.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Vicky. I had probably another five or ten questions that I wanted to ask and we've run out of time. This is a massively important issue. It's a massively important issue for Baswa. If you're a social worker and you're not a member of Baswa, do join us. If you are a member of Baswa and you want to find out more, please um, access our anti-poverty resources on the website. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Vicky.
3: Thanks, Andy. Thanks,
2: everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.